Please turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 and verse 14. Uh, Before we begin, I just wanted to say thank you to our family ministry team for pulling off Country Fair. It was awesome again this year. Uh, Hundreds of people. It was was fun. I saw a lot of uh, of our members, a lot of friends, but I also met quite a few folks who don't go to our church. And, you know, they brought their kids. Their kids had a great time. It was a wonderful way for them to tangibly experience love of Jesus Christ through candy and sugar and stuff. It was awesome. So thanks to our team. Uh, And then finally, the Bible studies that Matt and Blake and I wrote have now been published. And those are for sale also out there. Great stocking stuffers. Christmas coming up. Uh, Just FYI, if you purchase them from the church, the church recovers about $5 of our cost. If you buy them from Amazon, we make 45 cents a copy. So, you know, I'm just saying, I didn't figure we would pay off our $2.8 million debt with these books. But, you know, if you buy them from us, get a little bit more. So that might be a good idea. Okay. Now, I'm going to start with a legend. According to legend, a young man once came to Socrates and said, Oh, great Socrates, I seek wisdom. I seek knowledge. And Socrates, being the sage that he was, could spot a poser immediately. And he said, all right, well, come with me. And he led the young man down to the ocean and he had him walk out until he was up to his neck in water. And he asked him again, he said, what do you seek? The young man said, I seek wisdom. I seek knowledge. Socrates grabbed him by the back of the neck and stuffed him under the water, held him there for about 30 seconds and then pulled him up. He said, what do you seek? He said, oh, great Socrates, I seek wisdom, I seek... And Socrates stuffed him under again, held him for about 45 seconds. Pulled him up, he said, what do you seek? Oh, great Socrates, I seek wisdom, I seek knowledge. And down he went again, held him there for a minute. Guy's struggling. Socrates pulled him back up and he says, what do you seek? He said, "I, I seek air, I need air, Socrates. And Socrates said, as soon as you begin to seek wisdom as you have sought for air you will find it. Do you long to be wise? I mean, do you really genuinely want to be wise? And will you do anything to find wisdom? The Bible tells us there are just two pathways in life. There's a pathway of wisdom, wisdom from above, and then there's a pathway of foolishness that is wisdom from below. The book of Proverbs The writer personifies wisdom as this beautiful, gracious woman who is willing to give her wisdom to anyone who seeks it. Chapter 8 says, He who finds me, that is wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. Just two pathways. James has revealed it to us very clearly that each pathway is quite obvious in its outcome. I want you to read with me chapter four, chapter three, excuse me, in verse 14. James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. This is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Wisdom from below, wisdom from this earth, can work for you for a time. It can get you what you want for a time. But the end of that pathway is disorder and chaos. It's division in the church. It is a life that is not experiencing the fullness of God's blessing at all. But James says there's an alternative. Verse 17. 
However, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Of course, we want that wisdom, don't we? We'd be fools not to want wisdom from above. But how do we get it? How do we get it? I want you to continue to read with me chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Do you want wisdom? you do anything to get wisdom? Why don't you have wisdom? Do you notice as we were reading those verses that there's one word that's repeated over and over again? Did you, do you notice what it is? There's a key to interpretation in the Bible, and that is look for what's repeated by the author. That's probably important. James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's repeated? You, right? It's hard to miss second time around, wasn't it? James says you don't have wisdom because you've got a problem. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I have. I don't mean I've asked myself a question, what's wrong with you, people, not you. I mean, I've asked myself, what's wrong with me? Because I genuinely do want God's will. I genuinely do want God's wisdom. I genuinely do want God's best, but I also want what I want. And many times I find myself torn between the two. I really want both of them passionately. What, what is wrong with me? What's wrong with you? Keep reading with me in verse 4. James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives, gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Thanks for coming this morning. (laughs) I'm glad we won yesterday. Otherwise, this would be a really rough morning, wouldn't it? Wow, James is hard on us. Notice again verse 4. He says, you adulteresses. Ouch. What is he talking about? I, I, I just don't imagine that applies to me. I'm really relatively a pretty good guy, I think. I imagine that most of you feel the same about yourselves. It's a pretty gr- good group of folks. You, you can probably imagine that there are, there are probably a couple of really dirty, rotten sinners that snuck in the door this morning, but we kind of like to worship with our group because we're pretty good people, aren't we? Could James possibly be speaking to us? Notice he says adulteresses. It's just, it's just in the feminine. So is he just speaking to the women? No. 
James is using a metaphor. He employs the feminine because he's borrowing a metaphor that is throughout the Old Testament, which was his Bible. And the metaphor is this. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. In the Old Testament, God pictured himself as a loyal, faithful husband. The Old Testament and James are not saying, oh, it's only women who are unfaithful to their husbands. No, it's a metaphor. God is the husband, and Israel is the bride. Men and women in Israel, male and female, they're the bride, they're the wife. God is the loyal husband, and his bride is unfaithful. Specifically, his bride is unfaithful in the sin of idolatry. Jeremiah chapter 3 says, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's not speaking about women. He's talking about Israel. He's saying, Israel, you haven't been faithful to me because the nature of our relationship is like the nature of marriage. It's not a business contract. It's a relationship of love. And I am loyal to you, but you are not loyal to me. Love me. With all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, give me all of your heart. When you don't, don't, it's as if you have committed treachery against me. First commandments begin like this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. I'm like a husband who wants all of his wife. And there's no in-between. Can you imagine if on the day that I got married, Tristan and I were standing facing one another, and the pastor said, I want you to now repeat your vows to one another. Make your promises before your audience, your friends, your families, and before God. And Brian, we're going to start with you. I said, yeah, you know, Tristy, I, I take you as my lawfully wedded wife and I promise to love you and to cherish you and only to be a little unfaithful to you. I think the game would have stopped right there. Pause. Can we talk? I think we need to work a few things out. Because my expectation is loyalty. James says, you adulteresses. You are not undivided in your loyalty to me. You're idolaters. Now, do you picture yourself as an idolater? Probably not. Probably not a lot of folks here who have a little shrine set up in their house with figurines and incense burning and fruit set before the idols. Probably not a lot of literal idolaters. Again, he's using a figure of speech. He explains it. In chapter 4, Verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Friendship with the world is disloyalty to God. Friendship with the world is idolatry. Now, we live in a generation in which the world word friend has been destroyed. One company singularly destroyed the word friend, right? Facebook is ruined. What does friend mean? Well, you know, I got friends. You got friends? I bet you do. 
You probably have hundreds of friends. Some people are even friends of friends, and they befriended you, and so you said yes, you clicked yeah, now you're my friend. And then friends of their friends said, I I want more friends, right? Because you want people to get on your site and see, on your page, see, wow, that person's got lots of friends. But some of these people are acquaintances. Some you may not even know at all. So now we just call them Facebook friends. But then, right, we got real friends. In the first century, friend really meant something. There really were not a lot of long-distance friendships, so to speak. Friends were close by. Friends shared life together. Friends shared resources together. Friends were loyal to get to one another. That was the definition of friend. It wasn't used in any other way. It wasn't used in any other way. You know, this audience that James is writing to here, remember, these are first-century Jews. They were not literally idolaters either. Idolatry had gotten crushed out of Israel through the exiles, So they knew he was speaking figuratively. He was talking about their divided loyalty to the world. That they love God, but they also love the world. And he knew that they also had a love for the world because when someone else had something they didn't have, they were envious. And they exerted all kinds of energy to get what God had not given He goes on, chapter 4, verse 8, and he says, you are double-souled. You're two-souled. We saw that word earlier in chapter 1. You're double-souled. You want God's wisdom, but you want it your way. You want to listen to the voice of God and then decide if you want to do what he has to say. Because you love the world and you love God. And you are divided in your loyalty. And to be divided is death. You cannot experience the life of God within you as long as you are divided. Jesus put it like this. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is saying there can't be two things that have first place in your heart. It is simply not possible. One will be subjugated to the other. In this case, Jesus says, it's money. You can't serve God and money. In James, with his audience, he's talking about power. These wannabe teachers wanted influence and power and authority within the church. And James doesn't say to them, you know, that's wrong. He just says, no, your motive is wrong because you want it to spend it on your own pleasures. Money is not wrong. Money is not inherently evil. But it becomes a false idol when we love it more than we love God. So it could be money. It could be power and authority. It could be any other form of pleasure. It could be prestige and honor and praise from others. It could be accomplishments. It could be your own body. It could be anything. But when something begins to creep up and take first place in your heart, your heart becomes divided. That is death. You cannot become wise. And you cannot experience the fullness of God's blessing with a double soul, with a divided heart. I want you to mark your place here in James and turn back with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. We have alluded to this event in the Gospels earlier, but I, I wanted us to read it this morning. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, 
Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, God's anointed one. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven revealed this to you, Simon. I also say to you, But you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. How was Peter feeling at that moment? I think Peter would have said, this is the high point of my life. My whole life I've I've been trained to, to long for God to send his Messiah, and now I have found him. And I figured it out and he has said to me that that I belong to him, that that I'm actually a rock, that I'm going to have authority in his kingdom. Think about it for a moment. Jesus talking directly to Peter. This this must have been just an amazing, emotionally high experience for him. We go on, verse 20. It says, and Jesus warned the disciples that that they should tell no one that he was Messiah. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. How did Peter feel at that moment? (laughs) He went from the highest of highs to feeling about that small. You're Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. I don't think he's saying Peter was the first pope. I think he's saying that profession, that I'm the Messiah, son of God, that's going to be the foundation for the kingdom. And Peter, yeah, you're going to have authority in that place. And moments later, He looks Peter square in the eyes and says, get behind me, Satan. In front of the crowd, his 11 buds. How did he feel? Lower than low. Crushed. So which was it? Was Peter the rock or was Peter a tool of Satan? Peter the rock or a tool of, of the devil? Well, I think what happened was that Jesus revealed that Peter had a a divided heart, that his loyalties were divided between the interests of God, the things of God, and the things of the world. And what James is saying to us is we also have a divided heart. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship, loyalty to the things of the world, that's enmity toward God. Why don't you read James 4, verse 5 with me again? New American Standard says this. Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. You know, this is a very, very difficult verse to translate and to interpret. First question is, is that spirit the spirit of God or is it the spirit of man? Remember, there were no punctuation marks, no spaces between the words, all written in capital letters. 
You've got to determine from the context. Second thing that's difficult is that word for jealousy is always a negative word in the New Testament, but the word for desire is always a positive word in the New Testament. So what New American Standard is saying is that God wants all of your heart, which I think is a true statement, but I don't think that's what James is saying in this verse. I go with the translation of the Net Bible. Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? The spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning. James is saying, you need to acknowledge that there's something in you that is deeply broken. You have a divided heart. Paul put it like this in Galatians. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. The flesh within you that you are born with longs for complete independence from God. And the moment that you are born again, God puts his spirit, his Holy Spirit within you, and then the two go to war with one another. And you are the battleground for this internal civil conflict that is constant within you. Sanctification is allowing the spirit of God to crush the flesh. Sanctification is allowing the spirit of God to crucify the flesh, to put a beat down on the flesh, not once, but day after day after day, moment after moment after moment for the rest of your life. And as you give in to the spirit of God, the flesh is crushed and the internal man becomes unified, no longer divided. You're not in love with the world and trying to be in love with God, but the internal man becomes unified in longing just for the will of God. And then the internal man and the external man, that is our heart and our motivations, become aligned with our behavior and we are at peace. And we are wise. But as long as we as believers remain divided in our loyalties, we will experience what James describes as death. Frustration, conflict in our relationships, division, Jealousy, longing, envy, strife, death. Second Timothy chapter 4, Paul gave us an illustration. A man named Demas, one of his co-workers. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and he has gone to Thessalonica. Demas loved this present world. He was a friend of the world. He wasn't simply enjoying the good things that this world provides. He was allowing the things of the world to be first in his heart. And so he quit. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. James tells us there's a solution. We don't need to leave hopeless. Chapter 4, verse 6 of the book of James. But God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. Uh, We have a very big problem, but God has a much bigger solution. It is the grace of God, the immeasurable grace of God. Notice what he says again. He gives a greater grace. He gives a grace that is greater than all your sin. He gives a grace that is greater than the division of your soul within you that can bring unity and can bring harmony and can bring peace within you. When you think of the word grace, what do you think? Well, we often talk about grace in terms of undeserved favor, unmerited favor, God looks at you as you really are, you actually are, and loves you. He doesn't pretend that 
your sin doesn't exist, that your brokenness is gone. He looks at you in all of your sin and brokenness and says, I love you because I've given my son Jesus for your sin. That's undeserved. That is unmerited. That is the, that's the heart of the gospel. Loved when we don't deserve it. Loyal when we are disloyal. That's the grace of God. The grace of God, though, is also power. Okay, that unmerited favor creates power to change our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul had an interaction with God. It went like this. God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Remember, Paul was struggling. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn was. We can speculate, but we don't know. It was something that Paul didn't like. And it was, it was a trial. It was a tribulation. It was a test And Paul begged God over and over and over again, God, please pull the thorn. Please take it out. And after begging and pleading, God came to him and he said, no. No. Because my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Paul, you cannot know my power until you understand your weakness. And that thorn in your flesh is helping you understand how genuinely weak you are. I don't want to be weak. How about you? I don't don't want to feel weak. I don't want to be perceived as weak. I want to be perceived as strong and competent. I I can handle situations. I can handle my stuff. I can handle other people's stuff. I'm strong. I'm competent. That's how I want to feel about myself. I don't want to feel weak. How about you? That's a horribly uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? It's horrible, but it's true. James says, God is opposed to the proud. That word for opposition means to to stand or order against. God is ordered against the proud. That word for proud is very rich in its imagery. It's a compound word. The prefix means uh, to be above, something that's above And the verb means to appear, to appear above. But that word for for appear is the word from which we get phantom, phantom, okay? To appear above, but not to be above, that's pride. To appear above, but not to be above is pride. It's a phantom. To think that you are all that and to think that you are powerful and strong and in control is a phantom because you are not. God is opposed to, he sets himself contrary to those who think they are something when they are in fact not. Humility is simply reality. And when we are humble, we are ready to receive from God. What is God's part? It is immeasurable grace to us. What is our part? Go low, stay low, remain low. The word for humility actually comes from a verb that means low-lying. Low-lying. Sometimes God instructs us to change the posture of our body as we pray. Because when you're on your knees or you're on your face, it is hard to be proud. Go low and stay low. Earlier, Chip read Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? Speaking to exiles or those about to go into exile, 
Isaiah says, you know, you want to rebuild the temple to God, but this is what God says. He said, well, I've already got a house. Look up. That's my house. And where you're sitting right now, that's where I put my feet. How are you, how are you with your tiny little hands going to build something for me? In fact, my hand made all these things, all of heavens, all of earth, all the stone you would use, all the gold and silver and wood you would use, the strength of your own bodies, the minds to think, all of that, all of that I made. You're just going to use stuff that I made to build something very small for me. Really? My hand made all these things. That is how all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's it. Go low and stay low. Read with me again. Chapter 4, verse 6. God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Chapter 4, 6, and then 4, 10, they're, they're like bookends. The bookends are Humility. You want to grow in wisdom? Then become humble. Because that's reality. Then you're able to receive God's wisdom and God's power because you're seeing yourself accurately and you're seeing God accurately. Humility is the bookends. And then in between, James gives us ten commands. Okay, ten imperatives. How do we go low and stay low? How do we become such people, humble people? First, he says, submit. Chapter 4, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Submit, therefore, to God. The word for submit is actually based on the same verb that opposition is based on. Okay? God is opposed means God sets himself against. To submit means you set yourself below. Okay? It's a decision of the will, but it's also an attitude of the heart. Slaves are commanded by Peter and by Paul to submit to their masters. Think about that for a moment. A slave is commanded to submit. A slave is already subject to the master. The slave has no rights. The master is in charge. And yet, Peter and Paul say, now, now, slaves, submit, because it's an attitude of your heart. How do you serve the one who owns you? What is the attitude of your heart? Because submission is not just begrudging obedience. It is a willingness, even when you don't like the situation, to give in. That is submission. The great example of this is Jesus going to the cross when he says, Father, not my will but yours be done. Imagine if Jesus had said, Father, God, not my will but yours be done, but you need to know I really don't like this at all and and I'm not happy about going to the cross. I don't want to go to the cross. I'm going to go, but it is against my will and you're going to hear about it forever. I mean, literally. I'm, I'm going to keep bringing this up. You made me go to that cross. Is that submission? No. Submission is an attitude of the heart. Place your will below the will of God. Second, it says resist. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil. And here's a promise. He will flee from you. Wow, what does that mean? Be nice to know, wouldn't it? There's something you can do that makes Satan run away from you. What would that be? Well, in the context, it is saying, no, Satan, I will not follow 
your path. The path of Satan was to say to God, not your will, but mine be done. No, God, not your will, but mine. I will be like the Most High. I will ascend into heaven. I will be my own God. I will become my own idol. I will worship me. I will get what I want when I want. And when Satan came to Jesus and he tempted him in the wilderness, this is the essence of the temptation Jesus faced. To get something that Jesus may have wanted, but to get it on his own terms. To not follow the pathway of God, but to follow independence. Jesus was hungry, but God hadn't fed him yet. He could have made stones into bread, but that wasn't the will of God for him. Eating food was a legitimate and real need. But not in that way and not at that time. And Satan tempted, he said, tempted him again. He said, let me give you the kingdoms of the world. Just worship me and avoid the cross. I'll give them to you now without having to go to the cross. Satan was tempting him to find life independently from God. To resist Satan means I say, no, Satan, I won't follow your pathway. Whatever it is that God has brought into my life right now, I choose to submit. Submit. Put all of your will under the will of God. Resist. Say, no, Satan, I will not follow your path. And then draw near. I've said yes to God. I've said no to Satan. And now I'm moving near to God. And I move near to God when I long for intimacy with God more than I long for the stuff God can give me. Draw near. And when I draw near, I find a merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as I draw near to God, I experience conviction. I begin to see myself more as I am because I'm closer to God. Read with me again. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I draw near to God and I begin to see myself as I am. And I'm convicted of sin. Remember in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah is saying, woe. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Woe, woe, woe. You are in trouble. You are a sinner. He's bringing a message of conviction. Chapter 6, Isaiah moves into the presence of God. He draws near to God and Isaiah says then, woe to me. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I I have seen God's glory now and I realize how sinful I am. I've seen God in his reality and now I see myself in my reality. James says, as you draw near to God, be ready to confess. Cleanse your hands, that is, seek forgiveness for your deeds, but purify your hearts as well. Seek forgiveness for your motivation and the intentions of your heart. Let God cleanse you. How do you become humble? How do you go low? Give all of your will to God. Say, no, Satan, I will not pursue your pathway. You can't have a foothold in my life. Draw near to God and let him expose your sin and then say, yes, God, you're right. I confess. Be cleansed and purified and then repent. James says, be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into sorrow, your joy into gloom. Forever? No. But now, at this moment, as God is bringing conviction, repent. What he's talking about generally is it's repentance. 
In the Old Testament, the verb meant literally to turn. It was a simple verb. It means to turn. Ezekiel 40, 14 illustrates this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. That's the same verb three times. Turn, turn, turn. It is the, the 12th most common verb in the Old Testament because there was lots of turning that needed to happen. Repent. Joel has a wonderful passage. I encourage you maybe to read it this week. Joel chapter 2. And he says, uh, from the Lord's mouth, he says, uh, rend your hearts. I mean, r- just tear them. Not your garments. Don't, don't put on a show. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Because repentance is not just stopping the deed, but it's feeling the pain and the grief of sin. See, sometimes I can, I can make my children obey But I can tell when their hearts have turned and when their hearts haven't turned. And God says, turn your hearts. Repent. So how do we receive the wisdom of God? Give in. Give in. Acknowledge that there is something divided in you that God needs to make whole. There's something within you that wants what you want when you want it. That's not the way of God. Give in. When we give in, day after day, moment after moment, then we are ready to receive all good gifts from a generous God. Why don't you look at one more passage with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we're turning to 1 Corinthians 11, if I could have the, the servers go back and get communion prepared for us. Recall that in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that is divided. He's writing to a church in which um, the people love the world. They are in Christ, they are believers, but they're babes in Christ. Their hearts are divided. They're trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot with God. And the result is immaturity. The result is also chaos and conflict and division within the church itself. And Paul writes them, to rebuke them for this. Read with me in chapter 11, verse 17. He says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, when you come together supposedly to worship Jesus Christ, it's not for the better. You're not benefiting from it, and God isn't enjoying this worship. It's actually for the worse. Because in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. He says, You're divided. And so what you need to do when you come together, before you enjoy the Lord's Supper together, you need to stop and confess. You need to confess to the Lord your God, and you need to confess maybe to one another and bring healing. You need to allow your hearts to be unified in their allegiance to the one true God. Then come and worship. And so what I'd like for us to do this morning as we're being served is I'd like to take a few moments and just go before the Lord and say, God, where are are areas in my life where my heart is divided, where I, I, I want to love you, but I really am pursuing what I want? If you're a believer this morning, allow the Spirit to speak and bring conviction. You don't have to be a member here at Grace Bible Church to take the Lord's Supper with us. If you're, if you're a believer, 
doesn't matter your denominational background or your background at all. Please enjoy the Lord's Supper together, but let's all go before the Lord and allow him to speak. If you're not sure if you're a Christian this morning, you don't know if you have a relationship with God, then let me encourage you as these elements are coming that you understand they're, they're just a symbol. They're a symbol of Christ's body broken because you have sinned and his blood that is poured out because you have sinned. And the moment that you say, God, thank you, yes, I believe that your blood is for me and your body is for me, the moment you do that, the debt of sin is removed forever. And you have life that lasts forever. And so maybe this morning, as you take the cup and you take the bread, it could be the first moment for you to enter into and enjoy that relationship with God. Okay. Would the servers please come forward? Let's, uh, we'll wait for one another until everyone's served, and then we'll take the bread and the cup together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. After taking the bread, symbol of his body broken, took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do remember Jesus. This morning we remember his example of humility. Although he was God in human flesh, although he is God eternal, yet he chose the humiliation of taking on human flesh. He chose the humiliation of suffering for what we had done. And by doing so, provided us with life. Father, I pray this morning that we would learn from his example. That we would become people who genuinely see ourselves as we are, and as a result, we also see you as you are. And we go low. And we receive your grace in our own weakness. And we receive your wisdom in place of our foolishness. Father, we thank you for your loyal love to us. Thank you that foolishness of God is wiser than men. Thank you, Father, for the wisdom that we gain from you when we humble ourselves before you. We see you as you are. We see ourselves as we are. And I pray, Father, that we would be willing to submit to your way. I pray, Father, we would take small steps and large to bend our will to yours, to give in to you, to know your power and your grace and your wisdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.